Welcome to another episode of Immigration and Mobility Decoded, a podcast about business immigration and global mobility. I am Eric, and as always, joining me is Finn. Finn, how are things going? Uh, it's the end of July as we're recording this. Uh, we have a great episode. Uh, in a few moments, everyone will hear our combo with Josh Hyatt. But uh, Finn, I was off all of last week, so uh, what's the latest? You know, it's been it's been relatively slow in the immigration <laughs> news front. Uh, which I can't say is a bad thing, uh, as we, as many of our listeners might know, uh, Washington DC essentially shuts down in the summer. They, uh, they're <laughs> on the European schedule, which is nice for them. Uh, yeah. but, uh, don't, don't tend to get too, too many updates, uh, from, from the folks, the fine folks down in DC on the immigration front this time of year. Yeah. Uh, but our neighbors to the North did take some action that I know we'll talk about briefly here. So how was your week off though, Eric? Did you do anything enjoyable? Uh, it was, it was pretty enjoyable. It was uh, pretty relaxing. Uh, I stayed in the, in the, in the city of Chicago. So it was pretty nice. Um, definitely one of the highlights is I, uh, participated 50% of the Barbenheimer phenomenon. Uh, so I saw Oppenheimer last week, Uh very excellent movie. Uh, have yet to see Barbie. I think I'm going to wait just a little bit until uh, there's a little bit more room in the theaters. Uh, but uh, did you see any of those movies uh, over the last couple of days? Not yet, but I'm super familiar with the, with the book uh, that Christopher Nolan based yes. the Oppenheimer movie off of. I did you read that, it? I read it in college. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, and I think in college, maybe after, but um, yeah, no, Oppenheimer's a super interesting character, and Killian Murphy's one of my favorite actors. So I remember a couple of years ago when I heard about that, you know, that Nolan was putting that movie together. I was super excited. But yeah, I'm much more of a I'm much more of a wait until like the movies come out, you know, two months after the movies come out, yeah. when the theaters are completely empty. So that's gonna be my strategy. Just don't tell uh, a bunch of uh, super cinema fans that you're watching it on a different screen and not the 35 millimeter IMAX, the way it's meant to be watched, I guess, as they would say. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I go back and forth on that. I mean, I, I, the only IMAX, the last IMAX movie I saw was Dunkirk mm. and that was actually worth seeing in IMAX because yeah. that movie was, was incredible. So yeah. this, this could be, could be a similar one, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I like watching movies on my couch at home. You know. Yeah, you no, I mean it's so comfy. Well, I mean, uh, you might have to pick out a couple movies because you uh, you will be off uh, next uh, in the near future. Uh, you're doing a cross country road trip, and you just got this awesome camper we were talking about before we were recording. So I feel like that might be a perfect spot and perfect time when late at night and you know just watch a movie on your laptop or something. Yeah, late at night probably won't be uh, won't be. Uh, part of my life on that cross country road trip. I'm very much to get up, you know, well before the crack of dawn. Okay. When you're driving, get yeah. three, four hours under your belt before, you know, the sun comes up uh, and then get some breakfast and hit the road and be done with the day by 2 p.m. So that's usually my strategy every time I do these nice. long cross country road trips. But, and uh, for, for those who are listening, so you're, you're doing, uh, you're based on the East Coast and Maine. So you're doing Maine all the way to Cali. Is that right? Yep. All the way to California. Yeah. Zigzagging around a little bit, going to a few different spots, seeing some friends around the country, especially out West. So it'll be, it'll be nice. I always love going, going, uh, cross country and getting to see, you know, all the different States stopping yep. at diners is usually my, my go-to <laughs> again, part two of that schedule is get up really early, get a few hours on the road, stop at the local diner and 
you know, grab a steak and eggs and a coffee and chat up, you know, the local waitress, usually about sports. Yeah. Uh, I had a great time. I ended up spending quite a, quite a few too many hours uh, about five, six years ago when I drove cross country in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, oh, no way. Yeah. Debating Notre Dame football uh, with a couple of locals there. <laughs> so, Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. We're, we're uh, the last couple of years, we've we've done a weekend in South Bend for the at the start of the football season. And, and so we're doing that again this upcoming uh, September. I think we're going to Notre Dame versus Cal. I think if that's if I'm remembering correctly. But uh, yeah, no, it's uh, all the sports are heating up. And so I'm sure, you know, training camp is right around the corner. Your Patriots are gearing up uh i've actually have not been keeping up with any training camp news or over the summer uh so it should be just an interesting interesting upcoming nfl season which i'm sure we'll talk about plenty yeah i'm sure we will i uh i will say that uh that that sport we've talked about it with a few of our guests in the past but yeah sports is a is is kind of the lingua franca of, of the <laughs> world you know yeah. especially on a, on a podcast centered around immigration it feels like you're always able to, to talk with uh with anyone about sports so yeah totally uh, well, as much, uh, let's not keep the people waiting, Finn, uh, before we hop into our convo with uh, Josh Hyatt, who is part of Odyssey Relocation. Uh, we had a great conversation with him, talked you know, a lot about uh, you know, just the state of the global mobility industry. Uh, he shared his thoughts on you know, a couple of other things happening. Um, you know, last year, you worked with him on a, on, a, on a research paper about sustainability and mobility, so we hit on that. And then uh, towards the end, you know, we had a really fun uh, time talking about, you know, just technology and the rapid evolution and its impact on mobility and particularly, you know, things like AI and chat GPT. So that'll be coming up in a few moments. But uh, Finn, just really wanted to quickly uh, get your uh, thoughts, any updates on the recent news. Um, you mentioned Canada, um, you know, they launched that program. Um, gosh, has it already been like a little over a month ago. Um, their work permit program for tech workers. And uh, I guess that uh, the program recently opened up and they filled uh, 10,000 slots in one day. Um, and you spoke to Envoy's Canadian immigration experts. Um, what uh, updates can you share regarding this uh, recent news? Yeah, I mean, the, the program was a resounding success. So I believe uh, we're, we're filming this at the, at the end of July or shooting this at the end of July here. Uh, in mid-July, on a Sunday, uh, the Canadian government opened up uh, opened up the portal for uh, folks to uh, apply for this sort of H-1B uh, adjacent visa in uh, in Canada. Right to qualify, you have to have an H-1B in the U.S. Um, and then you can go and seek uh, work authorization or work permit in Canada. So they opened up the portal on Sunday, and in under 48 hours, they met the cap of 10,000 applications. Um, oh, so I talked with Envoys uh, Jim Yang and Daphne Wong about that. Uh, we'll release that conversation in a separate video. They kind of talk through, you know, what what the program, what the details of the program are, uh, what applicants uh, can expect uh, going forward in terms of processing times and uh, and and the permissions that are granted uh, under that work permit. Uh, what it could mean for for U.S. employers in the future, how they might be able to fold that into their global mobility program. And just you know the, how Canada may expand this uh, very successful pilot program, right? Um, that where, where the sole strategy is essentially poaching, uh, you know, H one B workers from the U S. who are stuck in the green card backlog. That's really who they're targeting here, right? As we we talk about regularly on the podcast, mm -hmm. uh, you know, especially Indian and Chinese nationals 
are stuck in sometimes decade long uh, green card backlogs trying to get permanent residence here, uh, despite their qualifications for, you know, a high skill visa like the H1B. Um, so really interesting conversation with Jim and Daphne. Uh, we'll add that, that when we release that video later in the week, we'll add the link in the comments below. So folks can go over and check that out. Oh, totally. Awesome. Appreciate the update, Finn. Um, awesome. I think with that, uh, we'll hop to our conversation with Josh Hyatt from Odyssey Relocation. And now I'd like to welcome Josh Hyatt, the VP of Sales and Marketing at Odyssey Relocation to Immigration and Mobility Decoded. Josh, thank you so much for hopping on the show today. Finn and I are uh, so excited to talk to you. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Finn. It's it's pretty fun to be here. I uh, I think this is my first official podcast. I've done some <laughs> stuff for video and TV before, but I don't think I've actually done a podcast before. So this is fun. Hey, first time for everything. Uh, we'll have to dive into more of that uh, video or the TV uh, experience in, in just a moment. Um, but yeah, Josh, I mean, we're recording this just after the, the 4th of July holiday. Um, sure, we all had a lot of fun. But yeah, how was your how was your holiday? Fourth was cool. I've got a, a really unique place I live in Orange County where we're able to see actually five firework shows from my deck on my house. So we have a big group over. Everybody comes and watch the fireworks. We barbecue and uh, the June gloom finally went away. So we were pretty excited. All right. That's that's clutch. Yeah, as long as that June gloom goes away. Um, and in addition to the fourth, you actually just got back from a pretty big trip uh, overseas in Japan. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that trip? Yeah. I love to travel. My wife and I have a huge passion for it, like lots of people do. And uh, Japan has been on the list for a while. We actually booked it in 2019, right before mm. 2020. Of course, that didn't work out real well with COVID. Uh, so we finally were able to rebook it recently and get ourselves there. Uh, Japan's an absolutely incredible country. Uh, beautiful, safe, easy to get around, friendly to tourists and people that are coming. And um, I mean, so many cool experiences that we had there. We, you know, went to Kyoto. We took the bullet train that is, you know, going 200 miles an hour. And, just gliding on air feels like, and yeah. uh, you know, Kyoto is just an absolutely beautiful historic city. You've got the bamboo forest there. You've got the uh, San Jusso Gwendo Temple, which I'm sure I butchered, uh, which is kind of like seeing the terracotta warriors in China. There's like thousands of statues of uh, of, uh, of Buddha there that they, that are amazing. And then the Fushima Inari Shrine, which is really famous. It's got all the red posts. You see a lot of people that take their Instagram photos with <laughs> these kind of all these like red posts that go on and on and on for, for days. It's really cool. And then when we got to Tokyo, we did a bunch of fun things. We did a ramen cooking class. Uh, so we spent four fun. hours trying to figure out how to make the world's best ramen, which was really cool. And uh, took in a baseball game. We did Mario Kart through the... <laughs> manga district so we actually drove on the streets of tokyo in little like go-karts uh, and then you know, food, right? so just everywhere in japan is incredible food sushi tempura yakitori yakiniku udon soba tonkatsu you, you name it i tried it and ate it so, we, <laughs> so that's a lot about japan but uh, uh just a beautiful beautiful country yeah, no, I mean, I've seen some photos and just heard a lot of great stories. And it's, it, it's definitely high on my bucket list of international trips that, that I want to go to because it, 
there's just so much of our here in the states too like so much of our culture is influenced by japan japanese culture uh then just the whole urbanization of like particularly tokyo like i don't want to say like i have this weird fascination but i do tend to go down some like youtube rabbit holes of like you know city designs and you know urban and whatnot and like tokyo is definitely up there given it's like proximity there like you're able to walk everywhere you got the bullet train as you mentioned the, the just the regular public transportation and biking and everything you can, first of all you can't even understand the scale of tokyo until you get there so you know finn finn mentioned that you used to be from san bernardo valley right in la and so if you took all of la which is like this huge sprawling metropolis that you know spans you know 60 or 70 miles all of that's just urban whereas in la there's kind of all kinds of different little areas and neighborhoods it's all just kind of urban high-rise and so you know if you're going out for the day in japan and you go you might go 30 or 40 minutes in one direction you're still in like urban tokyo and you know you have to really plan your days around where you're going because it's so far to get anywhere because it's so big but uh it's also really easy so uh but it's yeah. Flat. yeah nice nice josh you mentioned uh ramen japanese cuisine is, is definitely i think one of the top tier cuisines in, in all the world did you have the chance for to sure. try any natto those fermented soybeans while you were there i've had some natto before uh i don't think we had any on this trip but i have had it on other trips or other uh kind of culinary adventures i've had uh no natto i think uh we we, we did a kaiseki dinner in um kyoto kaiseki dinner is like a 10 course meal traditional japanese meal and you're going to get some interesting things when you do a 10 course meal like that. So we had a few items that we either A, couldn't identify or B, not sure it hit our palates perfectly. Uh, but uh, the rest of the majority of stuff we had was incredibly delicious. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. If anyone you can say something. Nice. No. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, did you, do you happen to like keep like a travel journal? Like, do you document your your trips? Because you, in addition, you're pretty well. Like, you travel a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. We we do a couple. My wife's a teacher, so she has big gaps of time off, and so we tend to travel when she has time off. Uh, I don't keep a journal. Uh, like I'm not a big Facebook poster normally, but the one time I typically post on Facebook is when I travel, so that I can at least have a little archive of all the stuff while. And so I mean, in case my computer melts down, I have to <laughs> get all the pictures somewhere in the cloud. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, no, I don't really write it, but I have a pretty good memory for this stuff. You know, you have these sort of like highlight experiences during a trip that no doubt stand out. So, you know, whether it's Mario coming through the city, uh, there's a thing there called Team Lab Planets, where it's like this video art installation that's like incredible those things you just never forget you just, you just yeah never forget those things, so yeah that's awesome that's awesome uh but josh in addition to traveling you are also a big music fest uh junkie as i guess yeah. is, is, is appropriate term um i am not on the same level as you because we've talked about this in the past um but actually behind me is one one of my favorite music fests that i went to pitchfork back in uh, 2016 um but yeah, uh, I mean, summer music fest season is in full swing. Uh, have you been to any fests so far this year or any plans uh, for, for the rest of the summer slash fall? 
Yeah, we've done a couple already this year. So we did one in spring called Innings Festival. That's in Arizona. So it goes along with spring training. So you can go out and watch a little baseball, uh, watch some bands, some cool bands there, like Green Day, Weezer, Eddie Vedder, Mumford, Marcus Mumford, Black Crows. So a lot of good bands at that one. The one that we go to every year, that's our big one, is Bottle Post Malone, Smash and Punk, Steel, Lizzo, Duran Duran, Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Struts, Little Nas X, Wu Tang. So it's all over the place uh, as far as the kind of music you might hear uh, at a festival. But that one's neat because you're up in Napa. All the wineries are serving wine there. Uh, all the famous chefs of Napa are, are serving food. Uh, so this is a little more like, uh, for lack of a better word, bougie uh, music festival. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's it's very low key as far as the audience of maybe excuse a tiny bit older, but uh, is super fun and super beautiful to be up in Napa usually. Uh, and then I got two more coming up. Uh, Ohana Fest, which is right in my backyard in Orange County. Uh, it's on the beach. It's Eddie Vedder's festival. Uh, Foo Fighters and Killers and Pretenders are playing this year. And then we're doing a crazy uh, 80s one called Darker Waves Fest in Huntington mm. Beach, which has got a lot of like 80s new wave kind of bands, New Order, Tears for Fears, Violent Femmes, Echo and the Bunny Men, stuff like that. So, nice, nice. So we're awesome. all over the place with our musical taste is what I'm trying to say. Like there's not one genre that I stick with. Yeah. Uh, I can go from rap and rock to to you know folk and bluegrass and that's what's i think so cool about doing music festivals how about you guys do you guys like like you end up getting stuck in one genre or do you like like lots of different kinds of music or you know yeah i mean uh i'm kind of the same way uh you know i i like i just like the experience of going to fests and just being exposed to so many different artists and bands um I would say the ones that I do most often are Pitchfork. I'm actually going to be doing Pitchfork for the first time since pre-COVID. So I skipped 2021 and then 2022. Uh, so very much looking forward to that. I mean, Pitchfork, as I'm sure you know, it's you know a lot more indie rock and maybe you get some like R&B, some rap in there, but definitely skews more indie um, or up-and-coming artists. Although, oddly and funny enough, Bon Iver is going to be playing on the Sunday night. Uh, so that should be a pretty big crowd. Um, Nicely pronounced, really Eric. By the way, Nicely pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. You can't, you can't, you can't mis mispronounce it. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, Lollapalooza is always a big one. I haven't been doing it in a couple of years. Uh, I mean, the crowd definitely skews a bit younger, so the, the artists are going to be maybe a little bit more reflective of that. I mean, just take, when I was earlier taking a look at that lineup, uh, I mean, I recognize a handful here and there, but. Uh, definitely in that particular uh, set list, uh, it's starting to feel like I'm outgrowing some of those, some of the, some of the performances. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, so yeah, it's, it's definitely should be pretty fun. I haven't been to an out of state one in a while. I did go to uh, one in DC once that like uh, the Strokes and uh, Drake headlined uh, respectively. Well, one, one or one of the nights. Um, yeah. Pitchfork, Lala. Um, went to uh, one down in St. Louis called Lou Fest. Uh, that was pretty fun a couple years ago. 
I had LCD sound system one night and then um, Mumford and Sons another night. Oh, and then um, um, I'm forgetting her name, but uh, she's uh, Lauren Hill. All right. Yeah, Lauren Hill. She was also supposed to play. Yeah. But she came out like so late. And so I think she only got got to play like 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. But she's um, kind of notorious for that, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Like stage fright. All right. So yeah. I got a question for you guys. I got a question for you guys. So I'm a couple of years older than you guys. <laughs> So I was thinking about this before the call. So what do you, what's like classic rock to you guys or classic, you know, like, like older music to you guys, like what era defines that for you? So like, you know, probably for me when I was growing up, it was like 70s stuff. Like, has that shifted for you guys or is it still kind of, is that still classic rock to you guys or class, you know? I mean, I listen to Miles Davis and Ella Fitzgerald all the time, so that's... Okay, that's so you're going all the way back. You're going, you know, 50s. But I would say classic rock is, is the Stones, it's the 60s. All right, so you're still going yeah. 60s. All right. Yeah, cool. I, I would say, yeah, it's like the Stones, uh, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you... I guess the Beatles-ish, right. yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, because yeah, they would, yeah, I guess they would fall under rock. Um. Yeah, I would say like 60s, 70s. I wouldn't say 80s. I feel like the 80s are in in music history like its own unique subset. Like it's yeah. plus it's not that far, I guess. I don't know. I feel like 80s rock is way different than than like classic rock 60s and 70s. It's 50 For years sure. ago the 80s. Think about that. It's crazy. Wow. It's crazy to think about. Uh my theory is this. Good music is always good music. Doesn't matter yep. what era or what generation you're from. I, you, I always say you end up liking your parents' music and even your parents' parents' music because good music just, you know, like you said, Ella Fitzgerald, Miles Davis, whatever, that stuff always will be good because it's just yep. good. And that's it. So exactly. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And I think that's uh, before we hop into, you know, the state of Relo and mobility uh, this year, uh, final thought, one of my final thoughts on, on Music Fest. So actually over the week, over the long weekend, uh, there's a documentary on Netflix about uh, Woodstock 99. So obviously Woodstock, you know, was, you know, 69, the original one, then there was one in 94. And then they, the final version of it was uh, 99. And that one was just, I can't say, I can't appropriately describe it on here without like swearing, but it was just a mess, as I'm sure you know, of a music that, that festival. Was the, that was the one with the mud people, right? Or it was just raining and horrible and there was no it, water and right. Well, yeah, except the mud that they were sliding in was mixed with other with mm -hmm. other uh, mm -hmm. things from bodies. Yes. Um, and uh, to your point about good music, uh, you know, the, the some of the bands that, that performed at Woodstock 99, um, I, I mean, they did have Jim Brown, uh, but then they also had like Insane Count Clown Posse, Limp Bizkit, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Still, the you know the you know still still great to this day. But just seeing some of these artists, and then you're like, eh, I guess like they were reflective of the time. But I don't know if I would go out of my way to like still listen to them. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I mean, it's, it goes back to what I was saying, right? I mean, you know, there's some stuff that just doesn't always cross generations right so you know maybe limpistic limp biscuit doesn't like appeal to people today as much but i would say great music's great music like i said earlier so i was thinking earlier about something i did earlier this year we went to a billy joel concert in new york city i think it was actually last year uh and it was his first concert back from covid and he does that thing at madison square garden where he, he plays kind of his hometown you know billy's in his 70s like mid 70s or something 
And you go to a show like that and you've got people from 12 year old to 90s, 90 year, 90 years old singing every word of every song. Right. And it's so it's incredible. So, I, you know, I always say music brings people together. And that's why I love exploring the music so much is because, you know, uh, I always say sometimes I get friends, I go to these music festivals and they go like, well, you know, I don't I don't like these bands or I don't know these bands. Like, why would I go to this music festival? It's like, hey, go explore new music, new styles. You might find an unknown band or somebody that you never heard before that might turn into your favorite. And, you know, you can you can explore a bunch of different genres. So it's cool. Yeah, totally. We we probably went to the same uh, tour then for Billy Joel because we saw uh, Billy Joel last summer uh, in, at Notre. He played at Notre Dame Stadium. My wife went to Notre Dame for college, so we we made the drive over to South Bend, and no, it was it was an amazing show. Um, and then next month we're seeing uh, Bruce Springsteen at Wrigley Field, so very much looking forward to that. That's another epic one that everyone you know everyone comes together for, right? Yep. Yep. Cool. Well, uh, Josh, definitely want to, you know, talk music all day, but uh, I got to transition here uh, begrudgingly into talking shop a little bit. This is Immigration and Mobility Decoded. So we let's do it a little bit about one of those two. Um, you know, we know you've been in the relocation industry for, for quite a while, you know, in various roles. You're at Odyssey now. Um, we're about halfway through 2023, and we want to pick your brain and get a sense of where you think, you know, the relocation and mobility industry is at this point maybe if you could give us a quick summary of, of what the what changes have happened uh over the past couple of years or decades what sticks out to you yeah I mean, I'll, I'll start with kind of what's going on today maybe and i can maybe take the lens backwards a little bit but you know i think we've gone from uh, a space where you know for the last probably eight to ten years we were humming along right everything was good for most of business Economy was good. Everybody was uh, feeling well, and obviously, the last uh, since since the pandemic and since some of the changes that have happened with remote work and work from home, uh, it's been challenging. So uh, we have a lot of forces right now that are are working against our industry, right? So mass layoffs. We've got hiring freezes that are happening. We've got high interest rates. We've got reluctance from homeowners to sell because of high interest rates, their, their properties. We've got low inventory if you're trying to buy a home uh, and uh, real estate prices are probably falling, right? So all of that is creating a really challenging atmosphere for our industry. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody or any of our listeners who are, are, are tuning in. But, um, you know, and, and then the last thing I think I keep seeing is uh, you know, there's still global disruptions that are also limiting our number of international moves. So what's going on in the Ukraine? Uh, what's going on now? We're starting to hear that uh, the State Department just put out restrictions on travel to China uh, because of some of the challenges there. Uh, so it's a t we're in a tough spot. I mean, it's it's been a challenge. Uh, I'd, I'd say right now we're, we're hopeful. Uh, we're starting to see some signs of things improving. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, the economic factors, I think, are, are interesting. I mean, you mentioned mass layoffs and increases uh, in certain sectors, but I think uh, I was reading earlier today that, you know, the U.S. is expected, or last month added close to 500,000 jobs in, in different industries. You know, kind of 
packaging all those economic factors together, obviously some of them are ambiguous. What regions, what areas are you seeing that are, you know, having brain drain and what areas are you seeing that are having brain gain or having population increases in the industry? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, it, you know, I, the tech sector has obviously been highly affected by everything going on in the last uh, two quarters, three quarters. And so you've seen, I think, uh, 160,000 plus tech workers that were laid off uh, and an additional 164,000 that lost their jobs last year. So in the you know last you know six months, you're talking about th over 300,000 people losing their jobs. Uh, in the tech sector, uh, other industries haven't been affected as much. We have clients in our industry, you know, that that we work with in mining and financial services and other areas that are doing great, right? So, uh, tech seems like uh, the the biggest loser so far. Uh, but uh, you know, you just said Vin, right? The tech, the last jobs report said that things are going well, right? So. I still think there is a war for talent out there and I still think companies are still trying to get good people that have skills. And there's certainly in certain sectors in tech, there's, you know, if you are a, a AI programmer or a you know, engineer, you're still highly desirable and someone who's, who's wanted out there. We were just uh, we were just reading over uh, the white paper that you contributed to last year uh, in conjunction with with Envoy, and you wrote about sustainability and mobility. Can you talk a little bit more about your thoughts on on that topic. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, thanks for thanks for bringing that up. It was fun to do that with you guys, by the way. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing, you know, I, I write a lot of RFPs for our company, have been involved in writing. But not until the last six months to a year have I started seeing a real focus on ESG and sustainability. Uh, so what we're starting to see is companies are really starting to focus on how their company impacts the environment and their employees' well-being and diversity, equity, inclusion, and sustainability is obviously a huge part of that. So we've got, again, I mentioned earlier, we've got some mining clients and they want to make sure from a organizational aspect that they have a sustainable future for themselves and their and as they work on sort of mining natural resources. So they're trying to figure out ways to reduce their carbon footprint and at least be carbon neutral or better, uh, most of them. And so, you know, when we look out at the marketplace, um, you know, we hear that employees themselves are more focused on, hey, how is my company affecting the environment, right? And, People want to work for purpose-driven companies, right? They don't want to just feel like they're a cog in the wheel. They want to know that their company's having some sort of social impact. So uh, according to some reports I read, 75% 75, 75 of people want to work for an organization that makes a positive contribution to society. And so that's that's one reason we're starting to see this pop up everywhere in these RFPs is that um, if they can get these ESGs policies in place, it's going to benefit the business, their stakeholders, their employees, and the community in which they're operating. So on that on that note, like, what do some of these ESG policies look like? I, I imagine it's you know reducing travel unless otherwise needed. But are there like are you seeing new things pop up, or can you just give us a sense of you know 
what are in these policies? Yeah, we're seeing sort of a wide range of impacts. So you've got policies, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, that are being affected by ESG. And then that's bubbling down to us and our partners at the RMCs, right? So they're asking us to take action with throughout our supply chain. Uh, and so from a policy perspective, you're seeing things like the inclusion of discard and donate. So if you move less stuff during a, a relocation, uh, it's going to reduce your carbon footprint overall, right? So they're saying, hey, get rid of stuff, recycle stuff. Uh, we're seeing um, things like well-being funds. We're seeing furniture allowances in lieu of household goods moves. So, hey, instead of instead of you know moving your stuff across the country or the world, just buy new stuff when you get there. It's, it'll it'll be a, reduce your carbon footprint. Uh, we just see companies that are looking at what their CO2 footprint estimates are, right? So they're saying, hey, Odyssey or RMC. Can you help us understand what our impact is? And so we're having to do a lot of reporting for companies now. Uh, and that's part of their policy or part of their overall program design is looking at those numbers on a regular basis and figuring out ways to reduce those carbon emission numbers. Um, and then for, for our side, it's, you know, simple things. Can we, uh, you know, do e-closings instead of using paper closings, right? So just reducing use of trees? Can we use, you know, recycled moving supplies? Can we use fuel efficient vehicles, induction lighting, you know, any, any kind of that type of stuff uh, becomes just all stuff that you can track. And so now we're being asked as an organization to just track and report that on a regular basis. Got it. Got it. What, uh, I guess, like advice or words of wisdom do you have for companies looking to, you know, either, for the first time incorporate ESG policies or maybe keep building them up? I would say the biggest thing is, first of all, it's a partnership, right? So you need to work with your clients and um, to understand what they need as an organization from both a reporting spec per perspective and what their expectations are for you as an organization from a um, uh, admissions or uh, overall uh, sustainability requirements. So not everybody's the same. Different industries have different sensitivities to it. Um, some, you know, again, I'll use the mining clients. They're very sensitive to it, right? So they want to really focus on it. Maybe a particular tech company, it's a focus, but not as a big an initiative for them. Maybe they don't feel like they're creating as much impact on the, on the environment, right? So um, get some understanding of what they want. Uh, get on board on uh, making sure that you have probably uh, someone within your organizations that is responsible for sustainability and uh, organizational uh, impact. Uh, and make sure you roll it out to your entire organization. Uh, I think even if your client's the one asking you to be ESG compliant or have reporting, that doesn't mean that you can't just bring all those same uh, impacts into your own organization and get a focus on that internally. Got it. Got it. Uh, so Josh, I know a couple of minutes ago, you know, Finn kind of laid the groundwork uh, and you, you mentioned, you know, just, you know, the state of, you know, the, I guess the overall economy jobs reports are still coming out um, that are seemingly better than people keep expecting. Uh, you know, the fed was raising interest rates, but you know, they skipped the month of June and they did, they did say there'll likely be like two more, I think for the rest of the year. So, 
I guess I'm just curious, like at the start of the year, end of last year, we're, we're all brace, we're all bracing for, you know, this, this, this recession. And, you know, as of July 6th, you know, I think safe to say we're, 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 it hasn't happened yet. And I think I even saw that like JP Morgan Chase and um, Goldman Sachs, like lowered their, you know, uh, outlook for a recession. So see, I'm just wondering how, how do these economic like turns and tides kind of impact uh, mobility and particularly this year when you're expecting, we're all expecting one thing, but then as the weeks go on, it's like, not as bad as we, I guess, all envisioned. It's confusing, Eric. I, it's, <laughs> uh, there's no, there's no better way to put it. I think you know, I, I think nobody really is confident in which direction we're heading, and that lack of confidence, I think, continues to create that uncertainty in the marketplace for corporations, right? And so, what we're st- and for just human beings, right? So, what we're still seeing at our company. Uh, is really a reluctance of employees to sell their home uh, because of interest rates, right? So interest rates still seem to be really high. Some data I got from PNC Bank, and I'll give a shout out to Katie Rednick and their mortgage team over there. 62% of homeowners are in what they call the handcuff zone. And what that means is that their interest rates are so low that they feel completely unable to give up their low rate, right? And so what that creates is oh and uh, and then 82% of those people are under 5% interest rates. So those people are unwilling to move or sell their home. So if they're getting offered a new job somewhere, they're saying, "Hey, I appreciate the new job, but I either have to be remote or I'm not willing to give up this kind of low interest rate." I have. Uh, and the other half of that, according to Redfin, homeowners in order to even consider selling their home or listing their home say that interest rates need to be at 3% or lower so they can buy a new home. So that's 78% of people are saying that. So you've got these opposing forces that are going on. People don't want to sell. People don't want to list. People don't want to buy. And so I think until we start seeing those rates coming down, uh, we're not going to see a lot of home sale and home purchase activity. And that, at the end of the day, really affects the RMCs. So that's usually the number one revenue source for most RMCs. And the other big thing I would say is the hiring freeze and layoffs are just a huge issue still. So while we're seeing job growth across the sector, um, in certain sectors, we're just seeing still mass hiring freezes. They're not hiring new employees or only hiring critical people. Uh, You know, some companies are still in layoff mode, so they're struggling financially and laying people off. So what we're seeing on the RFC side is we see a ton, ton of on hold files still pent up from the pandemic. And then additional to this sort of difficult job market, um, we're seeing just reduced volume overall in 2023. So uh, every RMC leader I've talked to, uh, we're in about the same boat, somewhere between 15 and 20% down from a volume perspective. Um, and this, this really all started in October of around 2022 and it's trended up through May of 2022. The good news is, uh, is that in June and July, we're really seeing a nice uptick in volume and it's providing us a pretty nice hope for the rest of the year. So some of that economic pressure that you're seeing, the good jobs report, things like that, we're starting to see a release of some of that, some of the challenges we've had in the last six months. 
Got it. Uh, one thing you mentioned with 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 the the sale of homes, you're seeing a couple um, of stories of you know people being offered a new job and just because of their interest rates, you know they don't want to move or they come back. Yeah, you know, I need to be remote. I guess what are your what are your current thoughts and what's the state of remote work uh, as we're talking in this early portion of July? Obviously, pandemic upended things. As we move further away from the pandemic remote work is here to stay, but I feel that there have been more and more stories and articles, however you want to classify it, of employers kind of taking it back. Uh, how how are you finding like your your clients, people you're talking with are navigating this situation where it's still something that the employees want? Um, a lot of people see the benefits of it, but employers are kind of, you know, the pendulum may, may be swinging back to them. Yeah, I mean it's it's tricky. I the, the reality is I don't think any of us it's it's hard it's really hard to judge um kind of the war for talent and it really I think it depends on which lens you're really looking through, right? So I think if you're an employer, I, I think you might think talent's really one in some way, right? So remote work, there are people's now unwillingness to maybe work after normal business hours. Uh, people focusing on work-life balance and mental health probably more than loyalty to the company in the past. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of people seem to be feeling like, oh, you know, remote work's out of the mess. But we're starting to see some other things happening, right? So in Silicon Valley, for instance, we're seeing some clawback some of the benefits that used to be really good. So uh, in the past, you know, competition for talent was so strong workers had just massive amount of employees. So they were getting, you know, huge hiring packages and stock options and unlimited vacations and wellness retreats and, you know, uh, masseuses on site and, you know, workouts and, uh, you know, baristas and all the food, you know, unlimited food. And all, a lot of these companies now, they're getting rid of those benefits, right? They're saying, hey, these aren't things we're really going to offer our employees as much anymore um and it, it feels like uh you know on one hand so many people are going to be able to continue to work remote forever and then on on another hand that's going to probably come with a cost of reduced benefits i would say overall so and then the final thing i'd say about it is you know the the, the last maybe threat to all of it is ai right? so i think a lot of people are fearful of job elimination and going to replace their job in the future and those current functions that's going to be deemed redundant at the end of the day. So it's just been an interesting time in that space. For sure, for sure. Yeah, that's. I think that's a perfect segue to you know next next points of discussion that we wanted to to pick your brains on today, Josh. And that is you know technology and its you know, impact on the mobility space. And so just you know just flat, like how have recent tech trends impacted? mobility and relocation you mentioned ai uh, a lot of us are familiar with you know last couple months in chat gpt um i guess holistically speaking before we dive dive a little bit deeper um yeah can you tell us how tech has impacted mobility and relo yeah i mean i you know i'll i'll, I'll tell a little story uh first of all i love tech right so i'm a huge you know i'm here on the west coast i've been working with 
you know, unicorn companies and emerging technologies for my entire career. And so I'm, I'm really into kind of understanding the tech scene. And so, uh, you know, AI, chat, chat GPT uh, is, is really interesting. So here's a, here's a little story. So uh, I'm the president of BAM, which is one of the larger industry groups. For those who don't know, it's out in the Bay Area. So we service kind of Silicon Valley. And uh, we have a big annual conference in February of this year. So that is, what, five months ago, four months ago. Uh, and at that conference, I usually give a little introductory speech as I kick off the, the conference. We have about 500 people there. So it's, you know, it's a nice group of people. And so I started giving my speech and it was a pretty bad speech. I'll just tell you, it was, it wasn't a great speech. The reason it wasn't great is because I had chat, chat GPT write my speech for me. And I did it on purpose and I read it verbatim for what chat GPT did. And most of the audience was like, yeah, okay, that was okay. Uh, but what I did is at the end of the speech, I admitted that I had chat GPT write the speech. I said, Hey guys, I got to tell you something. I didn't write this speech. ChatGPT, and I would say 90% of the audience had no idea what I was talking about. They looked at me strangely. Some people who got it were laughing and got a good chuckle out of it, but most people had very little idea what I was doing. Let me fast forward then to a few months later in um, May. In May, we had another meeting for, for BAM. And we did it specifically on AI. And then I surveyed that room. Uh, we had about uh, close to 200 people at that meeting. And I said, how many people have now, you know, heard my speech at, at BAM? And yeah, okay, great. And then how many people know what ChatGPT is now? The entire room raised their hand. So in just a small four or five month period, you can see the profound impact that something like, you know, AI and ChatGPT have had on the industry already and the way people are already starting to think about we spent the entire day thinking about how could this impact our industry and so lots of ideas i can share around that what are do you have any you know either general uses of you know how your industry peers uh, are utilizing chat gpt and ai so i'll just say i think it's still in its infancy right so nobody i don't know that anybody's really figured it out yet i think we're all sort of starting to ideate on how to use it and what may be possible i think some people are using it in a very limited capacity maybe so far uh but i mean discussions that i've been around there's some really obvious areas so one the, probably the most obvious area is trying to remove some of the work from the relocation consultants that are redundant or from anyone you know if you're in household goods or temp housing or any other sort of vertical in our industry uh, that, you know, there's, there's that redundant work that can be automated probably through ChatGPT and also creates an ability to have more availability. So if you want to have 24 seven support or, you know, some sort of instant, uh, answers to your questions, you might be able to have a good quick interaction with a chatbot. you know, where's my expense report or what do I need to know for the household goods movers that are coming tomorrow or, you know, I need some help with some destination information on this new country I'm going to. So tell me about Tokyo and, you know, how do I get around on a train in Tokyo? Things, things like an AI chatbot I think, can probably solve a lot of those things where you might have had a relocation consultant that had to do that before. So that's the most obvious. 
So on the topic of tech, and you mentioned you're in Silicon Valley, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with this uh, the ongoing, I don't want to call it a battle. I feel like that's all kind of not the right way to classify it, but it seems to be that a lot of the tech titans are moving toward AR slash VR, however, you know, augmented reality or virtual reality. Uh, you know, Meta slash Facebook has their, their, their own headset. Apple just unveiled their headset. How do you see the headsets or just this tech that puts the user in maybe a different space um, being utilized and being thought about in the mobility space? I guess, you know, simplest way to think about it from my end is I put on a headset and I'm being able to have like a almost real like interaction with someone who is in uh, Shanghai. Yeah. Uh, you know, how, how do you see this type of tech factoring into the larger mobility space where maybe someone uses this headset versus doing like a short-term assignment in a different country? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, don't know yet. You know, it, this stuff is so new right now. Uh, AR, VR, you know, the metaverse, the uh, Apple headset. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, I think you could predict the future where, um, maybe there's less international assignments, right? Because someone's saying, hey, do I, I, I feel like I can connect with my team in Shanghai, like you said, and, you know, I can have a business meeting. I can, you know, feel like I'm interacting with them on a personal level. And, you know, I never have to leave the comfort of my own house or apartment, right? So I, I definitely see that angle of it where maybe there's less people moving on the sort of what relocation related companies might do, you know, we're already seeing some of it. I think some of the temp housing companies have already used VR to start previewing their properties, right? So, hey, I need to find a new place to live in New York. I wanna look at 10 places today. Hey, slap on your VR headset and you can just pretend like you're walking around uh, you know, six or seven different New York apartments and go, oh, I, I really like, you know, apartment number three. That's the one. That's the one I want to be at. It fits my couch and my TV and my bed just right and looks out on a, you know, great view of the city. I, that's the one I want to do. So uh, we're already seeing that one happening. Uh, and then imagine some other good uses for it. I mean, like you said, let's say you are going to go to Shanghai and, you know, you don't, you, uh, you know, decided, okay, I can't make this virtually work, but I got to go to Shanghai and be on assignment for a couple of years. Maybe you want to take a city previewer tour. Normally you'd fly out to Shanghai. You'd have to, you know, walk around the city and see which neighborhoods you like. Well, maybe now you can do that all virtually. Like you could virtually walk around the city and say, oh, this, this looks like it's got the restaurants I want. There's the gym I want. And, you know, that's close to a, the, the hospital. And so I feel safe from a medical perspective. Right. So I think that's that that all could really happen. And then, you know, I think for our relocation consultants or or anyone who's a who's providing service to relocating employees, I mean, feeling like you're in the room with somebody and be able to answer their questions on a more human level. I think virtual reality can definitely solve for that in the future where, you know, Zoom's sort of one thing. Right. We're on we're on a you know video video chat right now. But I don't think that's the same as being in virtual reality with somebody where you're literally like, you know, there's like a presence, right? So I think that'll help from an emotional aspect and from a human aspect, being able to just connect better with people and deal with those real human issues in a very technological way.
Hey, Josh, one final question for you, loosely related to, to the AR, VR discussion, right? The ability for tech to fill the gap uh, that has maybe been left by, uh, by a decrease in global travel, which we've seen since COVID. I mean, there's been a slight uptick back, but it's, we're not back at 2018 levels yet, right? Pre-pandemic sure. levels quite, quite yet. Um, you were just in Japan. Right, Japan is is not widely known for having a robust immigration system, uh, where lots of new people are coming in to fill those demographic gaps. Yet they seem to be all right. They seem to be doing all right as an economy. Meanwhile, you have countries like Canada uh, that are welcoming pretty much as many immigrants as they possibly can, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to fill some of those demographic gaps that they know are coming. Right, Germany, similar, but is going to face many issues. Uh, Going, you know, the way I see it, it, seems like there's going to be pockets of globalization regionally. Maybe the U.S. and Canada will continue to be spots where where folks from other countries come to permanently. Um, but then there'll be other regions that that are that kind of fade into the dust that maybe you know were, were more popular for relocation in previous decades. What are what are your thoughts on that landscape? Maybe you know, looking looking at 2033. Uh, what do you what do you think will be the hotbeds for uh, for, for for relocation uh, internationally in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think I think some of the some of the ones have been popular for a while. You know, I think you just see I think wherever you have sort of mass population, it's hard not to think those are going to continue to be important. Right. I mean, you could take United States as a microcosm of it. Right. For years, people have been moving to the coasts. Right. Because there's more, uh, you know, centralized labor market, centralized where, where, where there's jobs at. And same thing when you think of the world, right? So as you see company, you know, India and China and UAE and Canada uh, and, you know, the countries that just have those bigger economies, I don't see how that picture doesn't continue to make those economies bigger and bigger and, you know, places that, you know, growing you know, maybe take a Spain or a Sweden or somebody like that. They're just not growing their populations. And so they're just going to get squeezed more and more, I think, then. So it, it's really hard to imagine a world where the things that are on the uptick now don't continue on the uptick is what I would say. For sure. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think? Because it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to guess. So. Yeah, I mean, it's you're, you're throwing darts at, at the wall and, and just completely guessing. But I don't know. I mean, it seems to me like Western Europe is demographically in trouble and they're not filling those gaps with immigration. The U.S. is at a significant risk of, of following that. Um, I mean, we luckily have some some built in uh, safeguards where it doesn't really matter how bad policymakers are in the U.S. Uh, the, the economy seems to keep on rolling no matter what. Um, but I think, you know, a country like Canada is, is, is thinking, you know, far ahead for their future by trying to bring in, uh, trying to bring in, you know, top talent from around top the world talent. and a variety yeah. of industries and sectors. And, and they're also helping them actually relocate to the provinces that need higher population, which is something the U.S. doesn't do. We don't have a place-based place -based visa program that incentivizes relocation to, you know, some of the burgeoning uh, or to some of the, you know, the, 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 the uh, areas that are having a difficult time maintaining population yeah it's you know it's it's always interesting when you look at sort of the world uh economies right and sort of if you if you put them on a on a chart or something it's like if you take the top like six or seven economies in the world it basically encompasses the rest of the world you know like everybody else in the rest of the world doesn't even match up to the top five or six so 
I don't know. I don't know how you bridge that gap. I think it just keeps, you know, someone's going to move up a little bit here and there, but it just feels like that's just going to keep getting wider and wider to me. Well, Josh, we've had an awesome time chatting with you today. Uh, Finn and I, as I always like to give our guests, you know, the last couple of minutes, uh, put the spotlight on you, uh, as well as the organizations that you're a part of. So obviously you're with uh, Odyssey Relocation and you, as you mentioned, you are the president of BAM, uh, the Bay Area Mobility Management. So uh, can you just tell us a little bit more about Odyssey, uh, the work that you guys do, and then same thing for, for BAM? Yeah, sure. Uh start with Odyssey a little bit. Uh, we are a relocation management company. We're headquartered in California. Uh, we're definitely a mid-sized relocation company. So uh, have all the global capabilities of really any RMC out there, uh, but a much more um, premium product probably is what I would say. Uh, we have a really unique approach to the way we run our business. Uh, one of the things we do is we really hire the most experienced people we can. Uh, and so I think one people may one thing people may not know about uh, most relocation management companies is most relocation consultants are hourly employees. Uh, and so they've got sort of limited time that they can be available for employees. Uh, we relocation consultants that are typically tenured. Uh, and so that's kind of we think of that as the way we kind of approach mobility. On the, on the other side for uh, BAM, I am the president president of BAM for a couple more months. Uh, I'm on the kind of last end of my two-year two year, uh, reign, I guess, for lack of a better word. Uh, it's a great organization if you have a chance to be a part of it. Uh, we have typically a really large Content, great networking, great chance to be with our community. Uh, and that's what we really focus on. We use the word very community, very uh, uh, strategically at BAM, because uh, that's what we really view everybody in our space as, is this kind of intertwined community that need to be all work together. Are you uh, term limited? I uh, Yes, I mean, we don't, I, I guess I should say, uh, we're redoing our bylaws right now. So yes, we're, there are no terms in the bylaws today, but yes, uh, I have a successor already and uh, they will take it over at the end of the year. Yeah, gotcha. gotcha. Shout out nice. to, shout out to Jordan, shout out to Jordan Blue from Eric. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, speaking of events, um, whether from Odyssey or, or BAM, uh, anything you want to plug in or highlight that's upcoming? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll just talk about a couple quick things. Uh, we're going to be for BAM, uh, August 23rd is our summer soiree. Uh, that's typically for only for our corporates and our sponsors only. Uh, so that's kind of a smaller event, uh, but a really nice, intimate, fun event. Uh, and that's going to be uh, at a uh, bocce ball place in outside of San Jose. That's really fun. Uh, and then our actual fall meeting that's focused on more education is October 5th. And then uh, I'll just put out a general uh, plug. 
she will be hosting an event in the Bay Area right around, right before ERC. Uh, maybe for those West Coast people who can't travel out to ERC this year, uh, we're going to be putting on a local event uh, that's going to have some really nice education for folks. So more details to follow. Awesome. Um, provide provide us those links uh, to where people can find out more. We'll put them in the description and show notes and so people can uh, check them out. Uh, and then finally, uh, if uh, where can where can people find you, uh, interact with you, ask you questions and just chat a little bit more? Yep. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Easy. Just look up Josh Hyatt. You'll find me. It's not hard. Uh, and uh, you can also go to our Odyssey website, www.odysseyreload.com. Info and chat. Awesome. Well, Josh, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you this afternoon uh, or late morning uh, as you're out on the West Coast. Uh, thank you so much for, for hopping on. Um, we'll have to have you back on for in the next few months uh, to see where things are, chat more about tech and festivals. We'll, to, we'll, we'll need that uh, summer festival recap from you uh, yeah, next time you're on. I mean, does a VR festival uh, work quite as well? I don't know. It's not, the same, right? you gotta, you gotta be there in the crowd with everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure it, it's, it's common though. I feel like it's definitely once all these headsets are out there, that's going to be a thing. That's right. I think you're probably so, right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. Thanks, Finn. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for having me. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Thanks.